Hello everyone, this is Arun Sridhar, your host and producer of Scraps. On behalf of Jojo and I, I would love to thank you for your support and for the fantastic reception of our Psychedelics podcast. If you've listened to the Psychedelics podcast, you'd have actually known that we've strived a lot for getting the facts and anecdotes correct about the historical use of psychedelics. And one of our major research uh, items that we did was the work of the renowned cultural historian and author Mike J. Now we have our own club on Clubhouse. It is our namesake, Scraps. So if you have a Clubhouse account, look up SKRAPS and you would be able to access our, our club and follow it. We do routinely plan to have rooms on Clubhouse. And recently we did one with uh, author Mike J. Uh, Mike, as you know, is a very uh, well-regarded cultural historian, author of four books. The most recent one is Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic. And prior to that, he had actually written three books, three fantastic books, I must say. Uh, one called Emperors of Dreams. The other one is High Society. And the third one is Atmosphere of Heaven. So this is a recording of the Clubhouse session. And hope you like it. And uh, please do join our Clubhouse and encourage us there. And also do interact with us live as well. Here is Mike and the session and its recording. Oh, it's really and- good. Okay, welcome. And um, throughout the course of the podcast, I had to and several people were approaching me and, and, and said um, that they had been listening to the series and have a have this previously unrealized uh, um, sort of interest in psychedelics and wanting to um, basically see what it's all about and take a trip of their own. Um, and, and they all seem to struggle with the same thing, which is why does the Western world approach drugs as being right and wrong? There's no middle ground and, and no no latitude in their judgment of that. You have a, maybe you can walk us through some of that. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I can, I, I, I guess in a way that, that's where I, came in, you know, as Aaron said, I started writing about this in the 1990s. I was writing quite widely around history and culture and always been very interested in medicine and science. And uh, at that time, there was really nothing in the media about drugs except about the drug problem, you know, which was maybe it was addiction or crime, but you couldn't really talk about drugs in the media <coughs> any anyway, except as... Um, a problem, you know, that we have to do something about this problem. Um, and that wasn't my experience of life in the 90s, you know, as a young person. Uh, there were all kinds of drugs everywhere recreationally, uh, and people were using them in all kinds of ways, some of them problematic, but others, you know, creative and positive. And I was also an early adopter of the internet. Uh, and um, in the early 90s, one of the very first things that colonized this online space where we all now are is uh, uh, the first 
uh, news groups and bulletin boards was drugs, conversations about drugs, people sharing their experience, sharing their expertise, because it was kind of taboo, as we say, in, in, you know, in the real world. Nobody could talk about it. And that was what got me interested in the, um, in, you know, the questions of what these drugs were and where they came from. Uh, and I looked into their history and I realized, of course, they hadn't always been illegal. That all happened around the time of the First World War around the time of alcohol prohibition. And if you go back behind that time, you know, this is what I've written about in uh, most of my books, uh, you find a world, a Western uh, culture, a Western society, um, where drugs play many, many different roles. Um, I mean, not just uh, decadent literary figures, but particularly in medicine and science, you know, doctors and scientists. You know, right from the birth of science onwards, were uh, um, uh, taking drugs themselves, writing about their experiences, talking about um, how it, uh, it, what they'd learned about the mind and the positive ways in which drugs could be used. So this was part of all kinds of conversations from uh, pharmacy and medicine through to uh, um, psychology and the uh, mind sciences and then out into literature and culture uh, and then I think what happened in the um, early 20th century with alcohol prohibition was there was a big kind of mass movement <coughs> uh, a large global movement to prohibit drugs and all through the 20th century um, drugs were as I say taboo silence they were a problem that we couldn't really talk about uh, um, how you know uh, uh, about their effects and um, their, their potential and their possibilities. Uh, so I was writing about this, and then you know, in the last few years, the psychedelic renaissance or whatever has come along. People are again interested in psychedelics. They're again interested in cognitive enhancers and uh, what these things, uh, what these substances tell us about the mind and about the brain and about how it works. Uh, and the positive and beneficial and therapeutic uses that they might have. So, um, for me, having studied the history, this seems like we're now just picking up again and continuing a conversation that we used to have, you know, that was interrupted, I guess, in the first half of our lifetime. Um, but, <coughs> and, um, you know, and there's something that, uh, you know, it exists in our history, although we've forgotten it, but it's also been expressed much in many more um ways in non-Western cultures and other times and places. There are all kinds of other cultures around the world where <clears throat> what we now call psychedelic plants have been used uh, in uh, all sorts of contexts, ritual, sacred, healing contexts. And we're now just awakening to that as well. So I think uh, it's a very exciting time. We've got a fantastically rich resources to draw on, and it's wonderful to be rediscovering all this. That's great, Mike. So one of the other things as well uh, that kind of comes to mind, and if we just take whatever you just said, and if we just take it through some examples to see how the perception of these substances have actually changed through the course of history, can we actually mm -hmm. pick a few examples? And then uh, most of them are from your own book anyway. Uh, let's maybe mm -hmm. pick opium to start with, which I think in today's world where we live in a post 9-11, and in fact, maybe post-2020, we should probably say BC and PC, before COVID and post-COVID. Yeah. Um, 
but i think at least in the post 911 i think one of our uh, my dear friends and one of uh, a harvard professor kit parker he did three tours of afghanistan and one of the things that he he actually did uh in despite being a harvard professor during his tours of afghanistan was that uh he used to say in afghanistan the only way to track the taliban was to actually have wads of cash and ultimately go after the opium uh but interestingly opium itself and going back to the question of right or wrong um i think the way through history that has changed over time is very interesting so do you want to maybe just walk us through examples of how opium has actually changed perception um through the century yeah sure i mean it's um you know in a way i think it's just a terrible tragic indictment that afghanistan such a rich country such a beautiful country with such amazing heritage you know is reduced after decades of war to the point where opium is the only uh, uh product that can make money although of course now diversifying into methamphetamines and so on and um uh there are still examples of cultures rajasthan i think is a very good example of a place where you still have um opium still exists in all its different forms that it's existed in through history uh there are religious groups who still uh, still uh, still use it like the, the bishnoi for example uh who are allowed to use it so it has those traditional ancient sacramental uses uh, it's also grown there for uh, pharmaceutical supplies of course opium is still grown around the world this is where our all our um codeine and uh, and um uh, you know morphine for our hospitals and pharmacies comes from and in Rajasthan of course there's also quite a lively uh, underground illicit opium trade this is the other world that we know opium from but i think it's it's interesting um we still think in, in the west we tend to think of opium as something that comes from asia that is eastern somehow you know we think of india maybe we think of china i think we've forgotten that um opium actually uh is a is a european plant and if you go back to uh the early days of prehistoric europe you can see that they really the two drugs that are really what you would call um in europe you know are home uh uh drugs the ones that we have uh, that, that, you know that originate here and have been used here unbroken for centuries are opium and alcohol and um all the way through um uh through uh western history uh european history opium was used it was uh, it became a very important medicine in the um 16th and 17th century uh it was at that time a very very effective medicine as the ancient greeks knew um it was a, it was a great painkiller uh it brought sleep it also brought pleasant dreams and if you took too much of it it would kill you you know all those facts that were the basic facts about all opium you know we've known that uh, here in the west for thousands of years and um it starts to be grown in turkey in the sort of 18th century there was quite a big trade in it so uh if you think of those uh figures um British figures like say Thomas de Quincy or Samuel Taylor Coleridge you know who used to drink laudanum laudanum was opium dissolved in alcohol then uh <coughs> that would have been opium from turkey and uh uh and then, and then in the 19th century of course uh when Bengal fell into British hands the British turned the um opium fields of Bengal into a huge 
agribusiness and produced enormous amounts of opium to uh, smuggle into China illegally. Um, and uh, when the Chinese destroyed this and uh, uh, then, the, then the British sent their gunboats in, that was the beginning of the, the opium wars that forced open China. Uh, so, that, um, so, so opium was really, in um, 19th century Britain, it was really the most important um, home medication. You know, there was no paracetamol, no aspirin, uh, uh, no ibuprofen. So everybody had um, opium preparations. You know, you could buy them not just in chemists, but in grocers, in markets. It was where everybody went for any pain, like a headache or like a menstrual pain. Particularly, of course, it had other very valuable uh, medical things. It's, it's, um, it's very good against uh, uh, diarrhea and dysentery, you know, very, which is very troublesome and um, often fatal conditions at those times. So it was a very important uh, medicine. And um, it was only in the um, uh, late 19th, early 20th century that it started to be controlled, um, really substituted by morphine. Once uh, morphine came along and the hypodermic needle, then doctors preferred morphine because it could dose it very accurately. And opium became this substance that was like a little, a little dirty, you know, a little kind of, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a kind of bad thing and it started to um, also have these connotations that it had come from China or from India or from somewhere foreign. So we now have this idea of opium as being some uh, dangerous, um, illicit um, foreign substance and uh, it really wasn't. Throughout our history it was just a very um, standard domestic medication here in, in Britain and Europe. Hi, uh, Arun. And uh, Mike, I just wanted to jump in a show here. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's great that you mentioned um, sort of the, uh, the, the history of uh, the Bengal, the British in Bengal and Bihar, and mm -hmm. uh, the, the growing of opium. What is interesting is that uh, uh, another interesting thing that I was reading about was the fact that this opium was smuggled into China primarily so that the British didn't have to pay in gold and silver for tea. Right? And this, because this was before... Uh, Tea was being grown in India, and once they figured that out, I mean, they didn't have to do this. But uh, till then, to avoid a balance of payments issue, so they ended up smuggling opium to, in exchange, if you will, indirectly, they, the the silver and gold that they got for the opium was used to buy tea, uh, officially from uh, China and so on. But uh, I just wanted to sort of uh, talk to you about another interesting point. So, uh, if you look at the history of uh, uh, Hinduism itself. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there is a, you know, if, and if you go back really far back, almost 3,500 years ago to the origins of the Rig Veda and so on, uh, mm -hmm. a significant part of the Rig Veda are dedicated to a, a what, what is seemingly a psychedelic substance called soma. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, and we, we still don't quite know the identity of this plant. The current consensus seems to be the, uh, the Amanita muscaria, the fly agaric mushroom, a psilocybin. Mushroom seems to be the current uh, the consensus, if you will, but it's, we're still not sure yet. Uh, but it, what is interesting is that uh, it isn't as simple a case as the Eastern idea of uh, psychedelics, you know, being a little bit more uh, liberal uh, than the Western, the moralistic, the Christian idea of you know, you know, good and good and bad and so on. Uh, because I think if the idea of using soma as a central religious uh, idea. Uh, disappeared in Hinduism itself by the time of the Buddha. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. the Buddha and Mahavira themselves said that psychedelics are bad. And, and so, so Soma became symbolic uh, because it was there in the Vedas and a good chunk of the Vedas are dedicated to Soma. 
uh, sort of still there, uh, but people actually stopped consuming. It wasn't treated as, as something that people would consume and so on pretty early in the day. So this also happened in other. Uh, so I'm just wondering whether across history that there seems to be cycles of where uh, people are okay with this, and then at some point of time they think this is a danger to society, and so we need to control, uh, and we need to sort of you know put some sort of strictures, either religious or much later obviously legal uh, and so on. So this is one, and the second element is that. Uh, Colonial uh, uh, empires also played a significant role. Uh, opium is just one example, but in equal measure, for example, in South India, there is a uh, there is a book called Madhurubagan by Perumal Murugan, who's a Tamil writer, and he writes he writes about uh, stories where uh, the upper caste Hindus, in collaboration with the British, essentially uh, in, uh, sort of uh, make a lot of the local brewing and psychedelic substance production illegal. Uh, through legal means for the first time uh, during the the 19th you know in the uh, 19th and 20th of early 20th century and just mm-hmm. the 19th century and so so there is uh, so there is a lot of this as well so i, I guess you, you think that is uh, this is sort of like a cycle that we kind of go through or or is there more to it oh i think um, uh, drugs just uh, they permeate society in so many different ways and they uh, interact with so many different historical stories in different ways uh, you're absolutely right to point out that uh, you know when we talk about the opium wars, really the you know um, this is a drug war that also includes tea. You could say that the very beginning of this was <coughs> the British addiction to tea in the 18th century, uh, which became you know really all-consuming. And as you say, tea at that point could only be bought from China from the emperor, uh, and there was nothing really that was produced in Britain that um, the Chinese emperor wanted, uh, except silver. So we were just paying in silver. And of course, we wanted other things from China. We wanted silk, we wanted porcelain. Uh, so it was really because of the British addiction to tea that uh, the uh, uh, the British government, uh, as it were, retaliated with, 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 with opium. Um, the question of Soma is really fascinating. I've looked at this a lot. I don't, you have to be a Sanskrit dollar to look really deeply uh, um, but I've, uh, I've, I've and a lot of the western scholarship is about um, yes a kind of uh, the it's botanical identity what was it um, I think this is rather an armchair game with Gordon Watson it was who suggested um, that we could fly <coughs> mushroom I don't believe that, that, that mushroom really grows there I also if you look at the beta it talks about uh, some stalks that you press together and it makes the kind of uh, milk that you then brew. Um, it's, hard, right. it, it's hard to do that uh, with a mushroom. But I think this, this uh, and of course, in the early history of um, uh, Hinduism, Soma doesn't entirely disappear, but you get Soma substitutes. And there are still um, lots of uh, ritual contexts in which Soma is used, but it's understood that this is a substitute for the real original Soma. Um, there's a Anthropologist called Ian Baker, who's got a paper coming out uh, very soon, which I'm really keen to read, uh, who says he has found a group of um, uh, adepts in uh, Bangladesh who still uh, drew a psychoact made out of 60 different ingredients. And uh, uh, this is uh, a, a sort of secret society, um, so it may be that there are still traditions of this. But I think it tells us that uh, there were uh, lots of plants used for their psychoactive effects in uh, Indo-European prehistory. 
And um, the as to why it um, was suppressed or substituted, um, I wonder if I, I, I think it's something about um, it seems to happen at the same time that you start to get texts and scriptures, and I think it's maybe because a text or a scripture, a written word, once you're starting uh, a, a religious tradition that includes <coughs> lots of um, different peoples of different ethnicities and different traditions, it's maybe more reliable to have a text or a scripture that everybody is working from rather than a plant ceremony, which is probably different in, in different places. So that's, that's maybe something to do with the, the way that re religions, as they grow, need to become more homogenous. And, um, so, I, so I, yeah, I think it's. Um, I, I, I think for that reason, there are also um, stages and historical context in which um, drugs are very important, and there's something which they have to be kept uh, restricted. You know, maybe to a religious or um, uh, uh, um, priestly elite, and there are other times when uh, they become seen as, as as problems, and the best way to uh, mold people into uh, political units to um, oppose them and ban them. M Mike, I yeah, that is true. go on, Chris. Go sorry. ahead, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead, go ahead. Jojo, uh, you were going to say something there? Go on. You were going to follow there, right? Oh, sure. So I, I think that uh, that last point about um, legislation as a means of um, oppression in some ways or controlling the masses to do what one small group wants or wants them to do or thinks they should do. I'm wondering, is there room today for recreational use of these plant substances without damaging their chances of being taken seriously as therapeutic tools? And I think cannabis, for instance, is going through this very thing right now in the U.S. where it's in, in several states and, and more every day or every election cycle, um, recreational use is, is coming online and and in addition to their original therapeutic uses that had, had very experiences for them. Um, and a lot of that is, is that some of the legislators have decided that control is no longer the most important thing, but that tax revenue has now usurped what they what they previously demanded in, in forms of control. Is, is there an opportunity to to make sure that what we do next doesn't damage the um, the reputation as therapeutic um, yeah. opportunity? I think you're you're absolutely right. And this is something that's happened through history. If you look at tobacco, for example, when tobacco first came to Europe, um, lots of jurisdictions in Europe um, banned it. Um, Germany, Russia, and so on. Uh, you know, as a sort of foreign um, habit. You know, used by political subversives and suspicious, and used by riffraff around the ports and docks, and we need to stamp this out. And then it became pretty clear after a while that this was not going to be possible because um, tobacco smoking became very popular. So they went, okay, let's tax it instead. And I think something like that has happened uh, with cannabis recently. Uh, but I think, you know, if you look at the states that have um, uh, 
legalised the um, non-medical use of cannabis. There were all sorts of predictions about um, how youth would go up and um, prevalence among teenagers would go up. And really, you know, we're starting to see now the sky has not fallen in. Uh, you know, things have not really changed very much. Actually, youth by teenagers has sort of gone down slightly in um, Colorado and in California. Uh, lots of uh, interesting things are happening, like, for example, uh, in jurisdictions where cannabis is legal, people are using fewer opioid um, pain medications. Lots of people are finding ways to use cannabis um, uh, uh, medicinally, you know, self-medicating with it. Uh, so I think, um, you know, this is, this is, this is perfectly, um, it, it's perfectly possible. And I think it's also, um, you know, we're starting to see particularly with psilocybin mushrooms and following a similar path. I think a lot of the people who started to uh, push for the uh, licensing and uh, legal regulation of psychedelics, people like Matt early on, followed the cannabis model, which is to start off using medical marijuana as a, uh, um, as a Trojan horse, as it were, you know, in a sort of slightly cynical way. Okay, if we can get people to accept uh, medical use, then that's a path to us getting a sort of broader legal regulation going you know i'm not sure that that did you know genuine medical um cannabis users any favors you know i think that the case makes sense on its on its own and i think the same is true with um psychedelics i think uh, uh it, it would be um you, you can see now that we're starting to move towards um ideas of uh legal regulation and um but also that a lot of the people, I don't know if you've seen Michael Holland's new book, um, he started, uh, he's shifted a little on this. Um, of course, he himself, you know, as I said from the beginning, I found psychedelics wonderful and very powerfully therapeutic, but hey, I'm not sick, you know, I don't, I don't need a, um, a, a psychiatrist or a therapist. What's the, you know, um, you know, what's with, uh, you know, people like me who are um, well and healthy but want to use psychedelics occasionally as part of our, you know, personal growth or wellness or whatever. So I think it's going to prove hard in the future to keep the uh, medical and the recreational uses so clearly demarcated because they're so obviously bleed into one another. Which, which is an interesting kind of segue both into history as well. Uh, and just because everything seems to, in the current time, seems to kind of have some sort of an allusion to things that have happened in the past. One of the examples that I think where these, it was very difficult to keep the, the two recreational as well as therapeutic use separate was true both in the case of opium and more in the case of nit nitrous oxide, wasn't it? Uh, in the case of opium, I think there are quite a few number of people in the audience who must have known a lot about, uh, about, about Samuel Coleridge, who himself was an opium user. And interestingly, you had a fantastic kind of article uh, recently about Samuel Coleridge's hypochondriasis, where he was actually mm -hmm. dosing himself on opium. And if anybody wants to kind of go in and, and read about it, that's a fantastic expose uh, and Samuel Coleridge kind of happened, comes across in two other of Mike's books as well, in terms of what the type of things that he suffered from and how he used opium and ultimately become became a bit addictive to the extent that the rhyme of the ancient mariner and the pains of sleep were both examples of, or at least seems to be redolent of, of opium or, or tastes of opium. 
or shades of opium use in in those two uh pieces of work um and then the other one was actually nitrous oxides which which is very interesting uh because it again started off as a therapeutic use isn't it i mean uh with the whole pneumatic institution in bristol mm-hmm. um with thomas beddows uh but then ultimately it almost took a very different turn uh with yeah. with humphrey davy who, who interestingly you can't really define humphrey davy as either a chemist philosopher or an engineer because for people in the audience and there are quite a few number of people who might be having a lot of scientific inclinations humphrey davy if you listen to our podcast you'll actually hear that humphrey davy was the was the tutor or rather the uh, his famous disciple was michael faraday um so there is a lot of kind of cultural historical and kind of influencing that was actually going on at the time and and nitrous oxide was bright and center of that and that's probably the first kind of synthetic mind altering substance right mike uh, do you want to tell us a bit more about that yeah that's right it was uh, it was the first i guess it was the first psychoactive um substance that emerged from a laboratory that nobody had known about before and it was as you say in in, in bristol uh it was based on the pneumatic institution which was maybe the first example i think of what we now call a medical research institute it was a place where um uh just as people were starting to discover all the different gases around 19 around 1800 uh, uh Thomas Beddoes, the doctor, decided that he should try them all and see if they had medicinal uses, because there were lots of lung diseases at the time, tuberculosis and uh, minor lung industrial conditions. Uh, so he hired Humphrey Davy at that point, a young um, chemistry assistant. He started synthesizing different gases, and one of the first he synthesized was nitrous oxide, and he inhaled it and had this extraordinary sensation of sort of explosion of euphoria and then a wonderful sense of kind of cosmic revelation that he lasted a minute or two while he had a lung full of it and then uh, of course what what do you do with this amazing discovery at that time it tells you so many things if you're interested in the relationship between the mind and the body you know how, how can it be that a lung full of gas can produce these amazing exalted feelings and uh, you know david was also a poet and started um uh inhaling it and writing poetry and his friends included Ulrich and Robert Sarvis a young romantic poet so they all started taking it in a kind of salon which was experimental so they were doing experiments on it and they were recording their experiences but also just from reading their experiences you can see they're having an amazing time and they're sparking off each other with all these different ideas that uh, cross between chemistry and poetry and medicine and philosophy uh and Davy gets uh, very interested in now uh, developing what he calls a language of feeling because it's so hard when you inhale nitrous oxide you have this very momentous very blissful experience but when you come back and people say what was that like what happened it's hard to find the words so they started to try and find words to describe these new states of mind uh and in all this it turned out that there was it's quite hard to find a medical application uh for nitrous oxide um but it became very in things like uh, uh music halls and carnivals if somebody had a, a a tank of nitrous oxide they could turn up and give it to the audience to uh, inhale and uh you know you have uh, you could charge money to people to get in and have a all sorts of have an interesting time that was when it 
developed its nickname of laughing gas. And after a couple of decades of this, um, the way it found its way into medicine was uh, through a dentist who went to one of these nitrous oxide shows and he noticed that when somebody inhaled some nitrous oxide and then they staggered around and would kind of, uh, you know, uh, hit their leg on a post or something, they could do uh, quite serious injury and then not notice it until the gas had worn off. So, of course, dentists, you know, this is the real problem with their business model, you know, if they could, that people don't want to go to the dentist, but if you have something that could, if you could say, come to me and I'll um, do a dental procedure on you and you won't feel anything. Uh, so that was really how uh, nitrous oxide found its way into um, anesthesia uh, from uh, from this kind of, uh, you know, culture of um, sort of hilarity, the sort of fairground sideshow. That was the way that it found its way into surgery and transformed modern surgery. Yeah, I think I think we kind of covered covered a bit of that, and I think a lot of it when we started doing the podcast as well, Mike. I think it was so important that people usually just talk about psychedelic substances, but it's so hard to actually understand how we got to the stage where we are today. Uh, and I think a lot of your work and the the way you've actually presented it in multiple books is something that we actually tried to collate in in a very small amount of time in the very first episode of a psychedelic series. So I hope we have done that justice, but for anybody else who is actually kind of wants to learn more, I think um, Mike's Emperors of Dreams is a fantastic book. I think it's also been updated with some up-to-date information as well. Um, and so it, it's a great book to actually kind of pick up and, and read just to un- know about various factoids and, and, and other information pertaining to these substances. Um, at this point, we'll probably just open up the floor here for any Q&A. So if anybody wants to come up and ask uh, any questions to Mike, please feel free to raise your hand and, and we'll let you up on the stage. The only requirement that we want is maybe you just have something filled up and you have a profile picture. Uh, so that way it helps us to identify who you are. And that's the only thing that we ask for. So please raise your hand and we'll let you up on the stage uh, to interact with Mike. So why well, we waiting? Come up one, one. Please uh, do, Chris. Yeah. I, yes. So one sort of I don't know if uh, uh, so one common habit that, that I've seen at least uh, across India and actually big parts of Southeast Asia is the consumption of uh, uh, areca nuts along with betel leaf. Right? Mm-hmm. And the areca and the areca nut actually has a psychoactive uh, uh, substance that is uh, sort of you know. Uh, not too dissimilar from nicotine, but slightly different, but it does mm-hmm. sort of give you alertness, energy, euphoria, uh, relaxation, you know, and then, hey, people in my family who who would consider smoking to be a sin, every one of them after a heavy meal will chew on uh, um, a betel leaf spawn, as it's called, and, uh, mm-hmm. and areca nut. Uh, and so do you think that there is a, in some sense, uh, but then, you know, areca nut and spawn have not gotten the attention that, say, tobacco has. Uh, Although it is also known to cause oral cancers, you know, for, for people who have a habit of, of chewing uh, areca nuts and uh, and pan leaves all their life and so on. Uh, so, do you think there are are there any? Do you think there are economic considerations? Well, you know, when when we when we decide that we're going to legally go after as we are now and we're taxing tobacco. I'm sure we're taxing tobacco far more than we're taxing pan and uh, areca nuts in in this part of the world. Yes, I mean, I think um, pan. Um is another example of um, the ways in which 
drugs interact with um, economic realities. If you look at uh, the um, history of Han and people across uh, Southeast Asia and you know, Thailand, as well as, uh, as well as India, you can see that uh, um, rather like um, tobacco in Europe, uh, there was a huge economy, not so much just in the uh, nuts and the leaves itself, but in all the instruments that go with them. And these are very much part of your sort of social status that, uh, you know, I've seen these, um, I've exhibited these beautiful um, pan sets, you know, where you have a box that opens up that has all the different little instruments inside that you need to uh, assemble your little pan wad. And often, uh, you know, they're made of uh, lacquer or inlaid with silver or very beautiful. But if you go to a small village in Southeast Asia and you see people chewing farms, they maybe just have like a little pouch for it. So uh, it's just in, in the same way, in, you know, with, with tobacco in, in, in Europe, if you were a, a, sort of, um, a, a peasant or a poor person smoking tobacco, you might just have like a half a walnut and a straw that you'd smoke it out of. So, of course, if you went to a fine tobacconist in the city, they would sell you all kinds of nut boxes and pipes and so there's a very elaborate, very expressive um, material culture that goes along with these things. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting to, uh, to look at Pan, which is kind of, it's kind of disappearing and starting to be banned on sort of public health grounds. And I think um, certainly there are parts of the world that I've been to, maybe further east in sort of uh, um, in, uh, in, the, in, in the Pacific, where there are... Palm has become something, this is probably true in India too, something you associate with the older generation. You know, your uh, grandmother or grandfather will do it and they'll have uh, red teeth and uh, rotten gums. And then the younger, uh, then maybe their, their children will smoke cigarettes and then maybe the young generation now will drink Coca-Cola or something instead. So I think it's become, it's also become associated uh, with an older traditional culture uh, and, that it, and it hasn't produced um, it's hard to produce in uh, sort of modern, um, you know, uh, forms like uh, uh, in, in the way that tobacco, for example, you could go from uh, chewing tobacco to uh, a nice shiny cellophane-covered packet of cigarettes. There's no modern um, industrial commodity version of pan. So I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's becoming uh, in many parts of Asia a niche product for that reason as uh, technological progress pushes forward. This is Jojo. I, I think I have um, just another kind of quirky situation that we're starting to see here in California with the the legalization, the taxation, uh, easing up on regulation. With the taxation, not just the regular sales tax, which is exorbitant, especially here in San Francisco in the city. And then you add to that the excise tax, which is meant to theoretically offset whatever social or healthcare um, issues arise from expanded use of these um, products, whether they're real or perceived. Um, those taxes are getting so high that it's actually pushing people back to black market access. So it's mm -hmm. better to go down the Cape Street. You may not be getting, you know, the product may not be as reliable but you're not getting taxed so heavily. And so it's, it's having an opposite of the intended effect of creating a safe product distribution line 
um, providing revenue for the state, that sort of thing. Is mm-hmm. that something that we're at risk of seeing across the board, or is this something that's unique to these um, these areas that are maybe overtaxed? I, I think that's a, that's a general um, administrative challenge is to find a price point that is attractive to pe- for producers to produce for, but it's not so um, high that it gives the uh, underground market you know, a, a, a free reign. And I think in many cases with drugs, it's not so hard to do because there's so much markup in the illicit supply chain. Uh, I think this has happened in probably in Canada as well. I mean, one thing that strikes me in, um, in California, if you go into a cannabis store, is that so clean and so kind of uh, high tech, uh, and there's virtually no actual cannabis there. I mean, there are all kinds of different um, edible products, all very beautifully packaged. Um, you know, there are vapes, lovely sort of slimline vapes, all in uh, uh, hygienic sealed packaging. There's uh, all these dabs and shatters and waxes. If you see an actual plant, you might see a, a, a bud of cannabis, but it's uh, you know, it's probably like in, in a little glass um, jar of its own. Uh, the, the California market seems to have moved so far away from, you know, the raw plant material. Seems so different from like buying a bit of uh, Mexican cannabis that you would buy on the street. Um, or even, you know, if you, um, I mean, the coffee shops in Amsterdam, for example, are very much the opposite. You go in there and everything is, everything is, 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 um, is weed or flour or, Hashish. Um, in fact, uh, I've only discovered recently that's because extracts and oils are not allowed in Dutch coffee shops. But there, you're really seeing plant products. And then when you go into a, can- a cannabis um, store in California, every- you-, you would hardly know that cannabis came from a plant. Everything is so highly refined and so beautifully produced. So <laughs> I think there's a strange gap there between the, uh, um, you know, this this kind of luxury market, which is the legal one. And of course, then there's room for somebody to sell like uh, a little <coughs> kind of uh, you know, mediocre weed full of seeds. That's going to be something much cheaper. And I think that's partly the way um, the sort of uh, regulatory framework that um, California set up made it very hard for um, small outfits, you know, mom and pop operations, uh, made it very hard for people who are just um, growing themselves on, the, on, on, their, on their balconies. So I think um, California has gone in at a certain level. Um, you know, there's been a kind of high amount of corporate capture. Almost everybody who's uh, producing for those shops has to be, you know, a very well-funded and very well-regulated um, production system. But I think that's probably it's best to go in high at that level because then you can always lower the barriers and decrease the regulations and uh, allow another legal market to come in under that to uh, keep the um, illicit market down. So, Mike, just to follow up on that point here, uh, but again, something that I know that a lot of consumer companies at this point of time, all the way from P&G, Procter & Gamble, to Reckitt Benkinser, to Unilever, or probably every other consumer product company uh, that we know of, is researching heavily into incorporating some form of cannabis or cannabinoids Etc. as part of the medicinal kind of output. And I think India, the place where I come from, is no kind of, um, it, it's not a foreigner to claims that consumer companies actually make for such things. But I think 
where i want to go with this and i think just to kind of stay on topic with respect to the cultural history is really even cannabis unlike where we spoke of of microsoxide and opium uh which basically have kind of a european kind of origins um especially kind of uh but in case of cannabis it has a very unique french connection isn't it uh do you want to tell people a bit more and they can go and dig a bit more through your emperors of dreams book uh as they read through it yes uh i well, it's it's really part of the um history of the um age of empire and the colonial era the story of how um cannabis came to europe and a lot of it was through france because of uh when uh napoleon invaded egypt he set up a strong connection between uh, egypt and uh, uh france because it was a semi colony of france through the 19th century and uh, uh so that was the first place really that europeans encountered uh cannabis there is a very um interesting figure in this whole story of uh, i think um you could say psychedelic therapy uh, a french uh, psychiatrist in um the 1840s called uh, Joseph Moreau who was the first person to uh to try cannabis himself orally in large doses to record his experience and all his hallucinations to try it on his patients and uh, then he supplied it to a lot of us literary figures in uh, uh 19th century paris and at that point there were also lots of chemists in paris making the first uh, pictures and pharmaceutical preparations uh and then it it spread around the world in uh, in, in in all kinds of different ways um uh, we're only just now starting to trace how cannabis moves into uh, into africa for example from lots of different directions at once from west africa into brazil from brazil up into uh, Mexico and then how um Indian indentured laborers brought it to the Caribbean you know it's an incredibly complicated global story and it's fascinating to me how some of these um some of these kind of local in, in, indigenous uh mind altering plants become great global um economies and others don't as you look at um East Africa for example there's cut which is stimulant leaf that uh, people choose and there's also coffee uh coffee has become a vast global commodity um cat is still something that's just chewed uh, traditionally in um uh Ethiopia and Somalia and Yemen where it came from it doesn't really have a a, a market outside that and there are all kinds of other different substances like in the south pacific for example kava which is a uh a leaf that, a, a, a root that's um a kind of natural herbal sedative and used in that part of the world um medicinally but also ceremonial ceremonially and ritually it's kind of euphoric and it's a function sort of uh, focus for social gatherings it's got all kinds of cultural meanings uh and you would have thought you know with a in a global world and where the west you know everybody's addicted to um you know downers and sedatives it's very hard to manage that so you think the fact that there's a natural um sedative plant preparation that you can drink I mean as uh, you may have noticed so there are quite a few um kava bars now in the bay area and around california um it's fascinating to me and i think i find it very hard to predict which of these um you know uh, indigenous traditions are going to become uh, huge global um, commodities in which uh, just get to remain where they were 
this is all fascinating. I think I think there's so many parts of this, both the deep history and then where we are today that is completely unknown by the vast majority of people. And um, I think in that spirit, since we have such a great historian here, I do want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to raise your hand if you have a question. Um, it's rare that we have folks like like Mike and Chris and and um, Jade, who's down in the Earth section, moving today, um, and so many other experts here. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. Um, otherwise, I know um, Arun's always good for a question, too. It's, it's <laughs> So, Mike, I think once again, if anybody wants to ask a question to Mike, please raise your hand. We'll let you up on the stage and, and you can ask Mike anything, especially with, as it pertains to the cultural origins or experiences that people have actually had through the centuries on on plants and plant-based substances as well as synthetic substances that, that the West has actually kind of grown to as or rather globally we kind of tend to see drugs as right or wrong and in fact as with any any type of substance there is both good bad depending on the dosage etc the classic thing that that i know for sure as a scientist is that morphine uh, is fantastically good if you want pain control but the fact that the toxicity that you need in terms of suppressing the amount of breathing that a person might actually take uh, is actually uh, only four times than your normal pain efficacy dose. So therefore, if you're taking one milligram at four milligrams or four times higher, you might actually have respiratory suppression. So therefore, that's one of the big reasons why patients or doctors may not use morphine in intensive care, especially for people who are on ventilators, et cetera. So that's how things have actually grown and people need to understand. But mm -hmm. somehow mind-altering substances because of the nature and how they've been seen, it's very different to actually take an acid reflux medication, etc. So therefore, people through the history have kind of experimented using religious ceremonies socially. So that's the type of, of thing that we wanted to kind of expose. And, and Mike has done a fantastic job through his work um, to actually um, kind of bring to light all of those, the, those type of experiences through the world. Mike, I, I think there'll be one other part of contemporary history, if we can call it, uh, given that that is still 70 years ago. 70, 80 years ago at this point of time, which is the use of, uh, especially the efforts by the Nazis, uh, which started off then, and then that kind of moved on to efforts that were done by the CIA uh, in terms of using mind-altering substances. And I think you probably know very well and, uh, that you, you've, you've kind of covered a bit in your Mescaline book, uh, your latest book that was published in late 2019. Uh, but then Steve Kinzer also has a fantastic book called Poisoner in Chief, which you also, I, I know you admire Steve a lot. Mm. Um, but I think, can you just talk us through just so that people in the audience, uh, because a lot of them know about the Second World War, they kind of know how uh, the Nazis actually kind of committed a lot of atrocities, etc. But then it did not just stop there. It kind of moved over post Second World War into, into the CIA. Uh, works as well. But then it was all centered around mind control. And can you tell us about how that fantastically failed if people were trying to use these substances forcibly for mind control? Yes. I mean, I think this is, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at the early uses of things because uh, people do notice things early on, which they're only recently rediscovering. I mean, for example, you mentioned about uh, 
morphine. If you go back and look at the ancient classical Greek sources, they talk a lot about you know the dosage and the risk and how dangerous it is if you only take a little bit more than the active dose um, that you can have an overdose and die. So that was understood from very very early on. And I think uh, when um, scientists started looking at um, LSD and then mescaline, these things that we now call uh, that we call psychedelics. Um, one of the first things they noticed was that uh, they make people very suggestive. And uh, uh, this was, you know, to uh, uh, psychiatrists and psychotherapists, this was really the core of the idea that they might be very useful in therapy. Uh, but of course, other people looked at them in other ways, particularly people in military intelligence thought, well, it would be um, if you could give people these drugs that would make them suggestible and they could. Um, you know, you could get their secrets out of them and you could reprogram their minds. And so they used almost every um, drug, both, both the um, Germans and the Americans. Uh, they used um, uh, these, um, what we call sort of twilight sleep um, drugs for, um, uh, that, that you could in, in, inject people with that would make them um, woozy and Sleepy, and you could then, um, uh, you know, with the idea came that these were um, truth drugs, you know, phenobarbital and so on. That uh, uh, if you injected people with them, they would have to tell you the truth. And um, they uh, and the Germans used um, also um, uh, mescaline a bit in these trials, but pretty much uh, rejected it immediately because they found, uh, you know, if you gave people psychedelics then um, they became very hostile towards you, of course, and they became very paranoid, of course, because you've given them psychedelics against their, against their will. Uh, and then it was, um, as you say, after the Second World War, the CIA started to um, look into this in much more detail and set up a program called MK Ultra, where they used mostly LSD to try to uh, um, make people suggestible, make them speak the truth and control their minds. And they had this idea that if you could give people large enough doses of LSD, you could break down um, their um, normal patterns of behavior, you could break down their consciousness, and then you could rebuild it again uh, in the way that you wanted. You could create, in the name of the famous book of, or uh, movie of the day, a Manchurian candidate, somebody who you'd programmed, as it were, by hypnosis, but without them knowing that they were programmed. Uh, so there was a lot of research into this which broke all kinds of um, ethical codes, used lots of um, conscripts uh, without telling them what they were doing. These were people who were either political prisoners or prisoners in the American carceral system. So it was really just, um, you know, an enormous uh, uh, scientific um, abuse and I think amounted to really to just a a torture program because of course they discovered in the end that yes if you gave people enough drugs you could destroy their minds but you couldn't rebuild them again um but this kind of core idea that um psychedelics made people more suggestible i mean that was an attempt to use it um for military means and against the interests of the subjects themselves but that was the same idea that really informed um psychedelic therapies and continues to do so. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of the research at, uh, at uh, Imperial College, for example, that has now focused on uh, the ways in which uh, psychedelics um, 
increased brain plasticity and um, you know a, a, and uh, you know put um, put people into a suggestible state in which their um, old um, patterns and uh, habits and uh, you know like addictions and phobias negative patterns can be broken. So in a way, you can see that uh, uh, you, you can see how this um, temptation to use psychedelics in the uh, in as, as it were, to go to the dark side with them happened. And it's a real salutary tale what happened uh, with the CIA through the 1950s and 1960s when they tried to do that. Yeah, uh, I think I think that, that, that's, that's a great summary. So uh, once again, uh, Mike's book on masculine kind of contains a lot, of, a lot of information, almost an entire chapter that is dedicated to this. And that is, if you want to step up from that, uh, Steve Kinzer's book called Poisoner in Chief uh, is a fantastic uh, expose uh, that was all obtained from the Right to Information Act uh, that was filed uh, for by the guy, the very guy, the very author who actually wrote Manchurian Candidate in the 1970s. Um, so Steve actually dug a bit deeper, and uh, it's it's a it's a very gut wrenching and also a very horrifying book. Uh, but a very, very extremely factful book that, that we love reading uh, while researching for the podcast as well uh, that we have. So um, we'll just give a couple more minutes for anybody in the audience who might actually want to come up and ask questions here. Uh, but while we do that, I just want to kind of say a couple of words. Um, I think the reason why we kind of uh, did uh, this session here today in our kind of club called Scraps, which is, which is the podcast that we have, uh, which looks at stories of, of brilliance in science and innovation. Um, and that's our kind of interview-based podcast, but we also have a 10-part narrative series kind of podcast called Psychedelics, exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelics and Mike's work. And we got to know Mike through the experience of researching for the, for the project. And uh, it's a, it's a, I really, really encourage everybody who has a lot of interest in, in cultural history through the centuries to kind of go and look at Mike's books, et cetera, as well. Um, with that, I think uh, I would like to pass the mic uh, or uh, kind of give the stage to uh, Krish Ashok as well. Krish, you actually have some wonderful kind of clubs as well. Uh, do you want to say a bit more? You have one immediately after in close to 25 minutes. Do you want to tell us a bit more about what you do there? Uh, and so that sure. others can also know a bit more. So thank you. I, uh, so first and foremost, I, yeah, thank you, Mike, for a fascinating uh, discussion. And I have, uh, you know, uh, when I was in high school, um, it's just an interesting story. When I was in high school, uh, this was grade nine, uh, my, my school project was on psychoactive substances. I know it's a very strange thing to ask high school kids to do a project on it. And so and, and the place where I researched all of this was at the British Council Library in, in Chennai, in South <laughs> India. So anyway, so it's quite interesting uh, right. and it's fascinating to see. And uh, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. So, uh, guys, I, I do two other rooms. There's, a, there's, a, there's one on Indian food called Masala Trail, where we, speak, where we take one specific team and then basically explore that. And then you guys get to ask questions. And today, today's discussion, which is in another 25 minutes, is, is on tomatoes. So all things tomatoes, tomatoes are used uh, and so on. So that's, uh, and then we do this uh, weekly every Thursday at 9.30 p.m. Indian time. And then I do another one on interconnected stories uh, of history. That's uh, that's every Friday at uh, 7.30 p.m. All Salem culture. So 
uh, see you guys there. Thanks, Mike. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Mike, do you want to say any uh, kind of final words here uh, before we close the room? Uh, no, I can. Uh, I might point people to my website, which is mikejerry.net, which has uh, a few articles on this and all the various other things I write about and uh, uh, pages to my books and so on. I guess that's my online shop window and archive. Beyond that, I just like to say thank you so much for um, all the interest you've taken, and the, it's been so interesting to um, to talk to you, to follow you on your journey of discovery, and see what um, strikes you and Jojo is interesting. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to have this uh, ongoing conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we must say that uh, for all the people in the audience, uh, Mike is not just a book author; he also writes. very very regularly for a lot of outlets um his website mikej.net is a fantastic resource uh of information and uh, please do follow him on twitter he does he's very active in terms of posting very interesting pieces of information and i strongly strongly recommend for anybody to actually go through uh mike's books uh and it's a, it's a fantastic kind of walk through history Uh, and i strongly recommend uh, every single one of them um jojo do you have any final thoughts before we close the room i just i want to say thanks to to mike and everyone who was here today we really appreciate it and um please check out mike's website check out podcastscraps.com um thanks um this that's been an effort of love and a lot of heavy lifting with uh, somebody here in the room romeo um so to say that and um if you have any questions or want to get in touch with us i know arun and i you can reach us through our um uh linkedin and twitter profiles that are associated with our profiles here and thanks for showing up yeah that's great mike thank you so much once again and uh, and we'll speak with you soon uh and to everybody who has great. been very very patiently kind of waiting and listening in i hope that actually provided you some with some information uh even though you might have been shy and not come up on stage uh, we kind of take it that this is a subject that is not uh where it's not been widely spoken about at least in the part of the world that I come from uh, originally come from and where most of you in the audience are uh it looks like most of you are from india so but at the same time uh the, the world is changing and mike has done a fantastic job of kind of exposing how things have kind of had its ebbs and flows through the course of history uh through the prism of kind of people and society so and culture um please do check out mike's work and that's our only plea at this point of time but mike thank you so much and on account of 3 we will probably close the room if that's okay with you mike right thank you very much and thank you all for joining us